Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. Many of us are tempted to view Christ's words in chapter 24 as an end of our times prediction. Led there by popular commentary, uninspired subheadings, and the fictional circumstances of movies and books. The influence that these extra-biblical sources have had on the belief system of the typical 21st century churchgoer is remarkable. Leading hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands astray. But instead of allowing the assumptions and additions of men to mislead us, we must focus on the text itself, remembering the original context of this conversation. And when we do, we find that Jesus' entire prophecy had a reasonable and observable fulfillment within the 40-year generation of those Christ was directly addressing. I mean, that was the accepted interpretation of the church for the first 1900 years of its existence. That Jesus was talking about the events of the temple in direct response to the apostles' question from verse 1 all the way through the prophecy's conclusion. That was the accepted interpretation of the church for the first 1900 years of its existence. Which makes anything else, by definition, A new, different, and strange theology. The truth is, in the days leading up to 70 AD, false teachers came, natural disasters occurred, persecution intensified, the gospel was proclaimed, the abomination stood, the believers fled, tribulation persisted, and the age of Israel came to its end. Just as Christ said it would. While taking uh, this conversation on the Mount of Olives with his disciples hours before his own crucifixion. The only reason that modern readers skip past the prophecy's actual historical fulfillment. Is because of the peculiar, fantastic and celestial imagery that Jesus employs. That stuff sure sounds like end-of-the-world type wording. And thus many have spent their lives looking into the sky to see when these calamities might occur. But upon closer inspection, we came to realize that this kind of cosmic wording was not at all original to Jesus and certainly doesn't predict the last days of our earth. No, his reference to the fall of heaven is part of a long-standing prophetic tradition used to convey the serious nature of such events. In fact, this exact language was used by prophets in the Old Testament to describe God's incredible judgment of other nations. 700 years earlier, Isaiah said in regard to the destruction of Babylon, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel brought much the same message, this time about the judgment of Egypt. 
When I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars, he said. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Joel used the language of this prophecy and so does Amos. Well, speaking about the invasion of Israel by the army of Assyria. And nobody would suggest that these men were speaking about the world's end several millennia off into the future. But merely using their prophetic voice to paint a picture of the severity, the brutality, the bleakness of the judgment that God had in store. It was so oppressive and so complete. It was as though the sky was falling down around them. As we might say in our vernacular. And that's what Jesus was telling his first century Jewish followers. That the tribulation in Jerusalem will be on that grand a scale. As Israel has taken her stand against the Lord's anointed and invoked the wrath of Almighty God. Jesus said to his disciples, the judgment is coming. And you best be ready for it when it comes. Isn't that where all of this talk about doom and destruction eventually leads us? Therefore, Jesus says in verse 42, Now that you know the gravity of the situation, the severity of the judgment that is to come, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Others are going to be swept away as in the days of Noah, he told them. But that does not have to be you. You can make yourself ready. Well, that's not quite right. Not you can make yourself ready. You must. That's what Christ charged the disciples gathered around him in Jerusalem. And it remains the charge for believers still today. Beginning with a call to be ready. In Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 13. So if you have not already done so. Please turn there with me. And follow along as we read God's word together. Matthew Chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. 
Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, of course, we know that this parable was originally addressed to those first 12 disciples as part of Christ's warning about the judgment that would come to Jerusalem during their lifetime. But it is likened in verse 1 to the kingdom of heaven as a whole. Which means principally this teaching still rings true in the present day. Because just like those living in the middle part of the first century, most of us believe that we've got all the time in the world before we'll be held to account. Intellectually, we know that moment will arrive at some point, but we live as though it's not all that near. Well, judgment is certain, the Bible-believing Christian will tell you, but not so soon. Even the disciples had to fight this tendency to put things off. Because for them, it was still 40 years in their future. So, yeah, it sounds horrible, but it doesn't affect my day-to-day. No, I'll make myself ready then. Oh, but then, my friends, is too late. That's what Jesus is talking about in this parable of the ten virgins. All ten of them thought they were qualified to be with the bridegroom. They all thought they were part of Christ's redeemed. But half of them were caught off guard. Half of them failed to make the necessary preparations. Half of them kept putting the thing off until tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And when he did arrive for his wedding, well, of course, they all wanted in. In the same way, everyone here one day wants to be in heaven. But choice few want to live for heaven today. No, they'd rather wait until the day of reckoning comes and then make some last minute kind of transformation. But that's not the way it works. You can't get ready after the moment has arrived. At that point, it's already too late. Just as it was for the virgins who failed to fill their lamps with oil while they were waiting. 
No, only those who prepare now and remain ready truly belong to him. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. We are instructed in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has what? Made herself ready. By living and serving expectantly with Christ Jesus always at the forefront of heart and mind. If your life doesn't reflect that constant state of preparedness, are you going to be allowed even to enter in? No. For as we're told in verse 10 of our text, once the bridegroom comes, those who already went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other versions also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. That's why the disciples had to always be on the alert because they didn't know the day or the hour. And because that remains true of us, well, we ought to be in constant expectancy also. That's what we declare in Article 9 of our church statement of faith. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. Not then, but now. So is that true of you this morning and every morning? I hope so. Because the blessing only comes to those whom the master finds so doing. Are you there? Now, there is no doubt in this time of waiting, Christ calls his disciples to be ready. And then he tells them to serve faithfully. Take a look now at verse 14, where Jesus applies a second parable. It says, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. 
You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you have been in and around Christendom for any period of time, surely you have heard this parable of the talents. It begins with a master who gives all he has to his servants as the day of his departure draws near. He's about to go on a journey, Jesus says of the man. And when he does, he will entrust his possessions to various members of his household. For ease of illustration, the master distributes to each slave a certain number of talents, which in their day was coinage made of precious metal containing a particular weight. Though Jesus does not specify the type of talent each servant was given, we can assume they are holding something of tremendous value. And so the master gave five talents to one servant, two talents to another, and one talent to the next, based on his assessment of their ability to steward. That's the indication we are given in verse 15. That the master gave to each according to his own ability. Not equally as our society has come to demand. Not equally, but accordingly. To ensure a maximum gain. That's the stage that Jesus sets for his story. And it would soon ring true in real life. The master, Jesus, was, while he was talking, a mere 50 days away from his own ascension. When he would leave the disciples behind. And he would put in the hands of those apostles, grace, peace, wisdom, blessing, and his most prized possession of all, the gospel truth he entrusted peter with an extremely large portion based on peter's ability to james and john he also gave a bunch 
To others, perhaps a little less responsibility in their case. But they all received a certain measure. And it was enough to do something with. But what? That's the question that each of the disciples had to answer. The same one we will answer one day ourselves. What are we going to do with all that the Lord has given? The most trusted slave in Christ's parable immediately and diligently went to work. Leveraging his endowment to multiply and magnify his master's worth. The second servant did likewise. Using his slightly lesser amount still to gain the master his increase. And upon his return, both of them received a full commendation. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Twice in this adulation, the master mentions that all important characteristic called faithfulness. Because that is how the Lord calls us to live our lives. Is there some risk involved in that at times? Yeah, from a worldly perspective. But not in the economy of God. Because in the end, faithfulness, diligence, and devotion are always rewarded. While unfaithfulness is always condemned. Sadly, that is the state of far too many who profess to believe. And we see their fate in the judgment of that final servant. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, he said in verse 24, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid. So I went and hid your talent in the ground, and thus I can return to you nothing more than what you first gave to me. Clearly, this man did not hold the way of the master in high regard. Calling him a hard man and accusing him of exploiting his workers. The slave realized, I suppose, that any work he performed, any profit he turned, any increase he mustered, well, it would only be to the master's benefit, not to his. So, for him, it wasn't worth the effort. This is the majority of the modern church. Serving Christ faithfully and diligently and devotedly, it's not going to grow my bottom line. So it isn't worth my effort. Well, if that's you here this morning, then the Lord would call you Wicked, lazy, and worthless. And he will take from you everything that he had given. And he will throw you into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Because over and over again, we are seeing the theme. The blessing only comes to those whom the master finds so doing. Yes. In this time of waiting, Christ calls his disciples to be ready. Serve faithfully. And care for Christ's followers. Take a look now at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Thirsty and give you something to drink. And when do we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, first glance, we might mistake this passage as a general all-inclusive call for works of compassion. As though Jesus were referring to all who were hungry, all who were distressed, and all who were needy when he speaks of the least of these brothers of mine. But if that were the case, then according to these words of Christ Jesus, acceptance into the kingdom of heaven is based on acts of kindness Deeds of mercy and efforts of a humanitarian form. Many a modern scholar have advanced that interpretation, including those of a more universalist persuasion. According to their edict, all will ultimately be judged by their response to human need. And on this basis, compassionate men and women of each and every religion will be numbered among the sheep. Is that really what Jesus is saying? No. Not at all. It's not being nice in general that gains us access to the kingdom. It's caring about and attending to the needs of the brethren. Those brothers of Christ who represent him on earth while he is in the heavenlies. That's inherent in this royal imagery of a king. You see, in their day, it would be rather rare for a governor, a general, or a king to engage their people on an individual basis. Even if they could have been physically present all the time, well, they didn't have that many hours. Instead, they would dispatch couriers to relay their instructions for them. And based on the authority of the sender, 
These representatives were to be treated as though they were the king themselves. Which means when James and John came knocking on your door and asked you for a cup of cold water, it was no different than Jesus standing in front of you asking for a drink himself. The same was true when they spoke about the kingdom also. Something we came to realize back in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel. There, Jesus said to the 12, He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet, shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man, shall receive a righteous man's reward. As the people received his followers, they received Christ. As they served his followers, they served Christ. As people fed, clothed, and visited those followers of Christ, so they did to the Lord Jesus also. And thus, as one theologian put it, the fate of the nations will be determined not by their humanitarian efforts in general, but by how they respond to the followers of Jesus who are charged with spreading the gospel and do so in the face of hunger, thirst, illness, and imprisonment. Good deeds done to the brethren, even the least of them, are not only works of compassion and morality, but reflect where the people stand in relation to the king and his kingdom. Those who welcome his brothers and listen to them will take their place at his right hand among the sheep. Those who refuse to show mercy and kindness to Christ's followers and thus reject the Lord Jesus, they will be set to the left. And the king will say to them. In verse 41. Depart from me. Accursed ones. Into the eternal fire. Which has been prepared for the devil. And his angels. For I was hungry. And you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. And you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will say, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment while the righteous go into eternal punishment life in their response they weren't just ridiculing and rejecting any old men now according to the principle that jesus outlines here what they were doing to the prophets what they were doing to the disciples what they were doing to those followers of christ well that's what they were doing directly to the lord jesus and if you don't welcome him well, then you will not be welcomed. 
Simple enough. Typically, perils that we talked about this morning are considered on an individual basis. And there's no doubt that each of these studies would be extremely profitable on their own as we dive into deeper and with more detail. But I hesitate to do that because they are part of one unified and cohesive teaching. Given so the disciples would know what to do while awaiting the judgment of Jerusalem. What does it mean to be prepared? How do I make myself ready? What should I be doing in the wait? Jesus says, be ready. Serve faithfully. And care for Christ's followers. As if he were standing right here in our midst. Because one day, he will be. And we need to be found so doing when he comes. Yeah? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, for the way it instructs us, not just about things that will happen someday, but the way that we're to live in their reality right now in this moment. And Lord, we have received great instruction here this morning that we're supposed to have a preparedness about us. That faithfulness is our top priority. Lord, and that we should show care and compassion for one another, for those who are in Christ. As we do that, we show our view toward you We show our thoughts toward you. We show our mind and our heart set toward you. And Lord, I pray that as we do those things, we would be found faithful. We would be found so doing that we might receive the blessing and the reward, yes, but even more than that, that you would receive all the honor and glory that you are due from lives lived according to your plan and your purpose. Help us to do that. Not someday, Lord. Help us to do that right here and right now. Thank you for this time. Continue to be exalted, we pray. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 9.30 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 